Hi, this is Chuck Raggage. I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, 312 Noel. If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work on the Nine Story Podcast. Also, you can see a sample of my three-dimensional model work at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History's Alcoa Foundation Hall of American Indians, where my Corn Planters Grant Indian Village model was on permanent display in their Iroquois section. No, the miniature version of Victoria's apartment building is not there, I think. Find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Do you hear me? I am Victoria. I am Victoria. Once upon a time, there was a place that became lost. Became lost. It is a place where story and substance combine. Where the reality of story shapes thoughts. Where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. The choices you made in the past don't matter. But the choice you make now is the one that will set your fate. Hit me again, Sarge. The U.S. Army officer smacked his shot glass down on the bar and shoved it toward the bartender. Make it a double. Coming right up. Sarge readjusted his Santa hat, reached for a bottle of Old Forester, and poured a generous two fingers worth into the empty glass. Above the back bar, a small black and white Philco television set, flanked by two Christmas wreaths, showed newsreel footage recapping the recently ended Berlin airlift. There you go, Captain McMillan. Damn, I'm sorry. Major McMillan, sir. Old habits die hard. Forget about it, Sarge. I'm just plain Mr. McMillan now. So you finally got mustered out, huh? Yeah, once the Russians backed off in Berlin, my services were no longer needed. McMillan downed half his drink, then stared absently at the remainder. Someone dropped a dime in the jukebox, and Spike Lee and his city slickers banged away on All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Going home to your family steel company business in Pittsburgh now? That was always the intention, McMillan said with little enthusiasm. Got my Pullman ticket right here for the 1120 Night Express out of Penn Station. McMillan patted the ticket folder protruding from his uniform jacket's left chest pocket. He didn't expect to live long enough to actually use the sleeping car reservations. The weight and bulk of a concealed war souvenir pistol in his shoulder holster reinforced that point. Sarge wiped his hands on a cleaning rag and leaned against the bar. So what brings you all the way out here to Flatbush? You only got four hours or so before train time. I wanted to make a quick stop and say hello before I headed home. McMillan's eyes scanned the room. You got yourself a real nice place here, Sarge. Busy, too. Thanks, Major. This joint's everything I dreamt of someday owning while we was busy fighting the cold and them damn Nazis at Bastogne. Sarge poured himself a whiskey and topped off McMillan's shot glass. He lifted his drink. Here's to all the guys we lost in that godforsaken battle. McMillan tapped his glass against Sarge's. 
May we never forget. He downed the drink at one gulp, the welcome burn providing little additional comfort. One more thing, Sarge. Do you happen to know where Sergeant Henderson's widow is living these days? Mike Henderson's wife, Peggy. Sure. Her and her little boy moved into a small apartment at the corner of Martise Street and Nostranav. It's only a couple blocks from here, close to the subway. Why are you asking? I owed Henderson a hundred bucks from that last poker game before he... Well, I never got the chance to pay up. I figured she could use the money. With interest. Heh, <laughs> you got that right. Time's been hard for Peg raising a kid all by herself and all. She waits tables here on the weekends. Sarge grabbed a blank bar receipt and a pencil. Here, let me write down her address for you while I'm thinking about it. Thanks, Sarge. McMillan reached for his wallet. What do I owe you? Hey, drinks around the house, Major. Least I can do for the guy who saved my life pulling me out of that burning half-track under crop tank fire. They shook hands while Gene Autry's latest recording, Here Comes Santa Claus, spun merrily in the jukebox. It's great seeing you again, Major. God bless you, and have a Merry Christmas, sir. You too, Sarge, and say hi to the wife for me. McMillan buttoned his army trench coat and slipped on a pair of leather gloves while heading for the door. Outside, frigid wind gusts cut through the old forester fog, numbing McMillan's brain. Icy snow pellets stung his eyes as he glanced up at the red and blue neon sign glowing above the doorway. Sarge's Tavern and Grill, he read aloud. Well, at least someone's dream came true. He tugged his officer's cap down securely against the weather and started walking. The wind-blown dusting of snow skittered and swirled on the sidewalk as McMillan made his unsteady way west along Church Street toward Nostrand Avenue. The glittering Christmas lights lining the streets and the festive decorations in the store windows did nothing to brighten his mood. They had the opposite effect. Worse, the smiling faces and happy voices of passers-by, arms loaded with gifts, edged him even deeper into the depression eating away at his soul. McMillan hesitated at the corner of church and Nostrand. He dreaded the thought of facing the young widow. If only he'd done things differently in the winter of 44, Peggy Henderson would still have a husband, and her son wouldn't be fatherless. No two ways about it. The fault was all his, and his alone. The temptation to use the pistol on himself right then and there was strong. Some war hero he turned out to be. Yes, he had a chest full of medals proving his courage under enemy fire, but the idea of confronting Henderson's widow filled him with unreasoning dread. Still, the long-delayed poker winnings could do some good tonight, and perhaps even provide him with a small measure of atonement. It was just enough to tip the scales toward action, however tentative. The cold, beckoning embrace of oblivion would have to wait. With that, McMillan quickened his pace. But the further he walked north along Nostrand Avenue, the more his confidence wavered. Lost in thoughts of doubt and self-incrimination, he almost ran into a sawhorse barrier blocking his path. Yellow kerosene flames licked and danced from the round tops of several oil and dirt cake smudge pots. 
Their flickering warning light illuminated a sign reading, Danger. Sidewalk closed. Cross street here. A gaping hole existed in the adjacent lot, where a building had been torn down and part of the sidewalk was missing. Giving in to the inevitable, McMillan waited for a break in the traffic and dutifully crossed the street. He ended up standing in front of a store marked Steinwitzen's Son Toy Emporium, established 1910. In the store's main window, a miniature Christmas village was on display, with an American Flyer toy train set endlessly circling around it. The three-car train, especially its black steam engine puffing wisps of realistic-looking smoke, caught McMillan's attention. It was a Pennsylvania Railroad locomotive similar to those seen everywhere on the vast network of PRR lines that blanketed his Steel City hometown of Pittsburgh, PA. The engine number painted on the side of the locomotive's cab was 312. He was about to turn away from this momentary distraction when his eyes were drawn to the model of a multi-story apartment building in the center of the display village. Although it was a large model, it had been done to a much smaller scale than the other buildings, so as not to overpower them with its bulk. He counted the floors, nine in all. The intricately detailed structure was rather dark and somber looking. Its weathered exterior gave it a realistic aged, almost abandoned appearance that seemed out of place in the otherwise whimsical display. The model's only bright spot was an illuminated yellow star affixed to the stone archway above the building's main entrance. McMillan noted how the steam from his breath was rising in front of him, fogging the store window. The bitter cold winds had died down. His eyes refocused on his own reflection, then deep focused on the images across the street behind him. The vision took his breath away. There, in the supposedly empty lot on the other side of Nostrand Avenue, stood a large building. A dark and somber-looking multi-story building. He spun around and gasped at the sight of a solitary yellow star glowing in the stone archway above the entrance to the building's first-floor lobby. He blinked and blinked again. The building was still there. Dumbfounded, McMillan walked out into traffic. Several cabs and a Wonder Bread truck swerved out of the way, their drivers cursing and blowing their horns. Before he knew it, McMillan found himself standing inside the Phantom Building's dimly lit lobby. The Art Nouveau interior was somewhat shabby, but far from derelict. It was also eerily quiet. No sounds from the street outside penetrated its grimy windows and faded silk-covered walls. A tall fir tree, devoid of any decorations, stood in one corner, next to the tarnished brass doors of an elevator. The heady scent of pine, mixed with a stale background odor tainted with dust and mildew. The effect was not unlike masking the smell of an old automobile's interior by hanging a cardboard pine tree air freshener from the rearview mirror. A muffled whirring sound drew McMillan's attention to the elevator. The brass indicator arrow above the doors came to rest on the number one position. After a pause, the door segments telescoped into their sidewall pocket, revealing a lone figure of a little girl 
not more than nine or ten years old. She wore a long-sleeved purple party dress, decidedly old-fashioned, like something from the turn of the last century. Her blonde hair, full of curls and ringlets, hung down to her ruffled white lace collar, framing an impish but pretty little face that seemed unearthly pale. Her head was crowned with a British Tommy Steel Army helmet, while a black rubber gas mask, canister, and breathing hose hung from one shoulder. In her right hand, she held an ancient wooden music box. The fingers of her left hand grasped the leather chin strap of a U.S. Army helmet that had two white captain stripes painted on the back. The girl nodded toward the elevator's interior. Permission granted to come aboard, Captain McMullen, sir. She said in a cultured English accent. Hurry right along now. We must go for a ride before the blasted Jerry's resume their blitz. Now wait one damn minute, McMillan said. Just what the hell is going on here? No time for formality, sir. Need to know basis only, I'm afraid. The girl set her music box on the floor and waved the extra helmet at McMillan. Pop this on, Yank, and get your ass in here on the double. Chop, chop! Startled and somewhat bemused by the abrupt order coming from one so young, McMillan removed his officer's cap, donned the helmet, and stepped into the elevator. Back of the lift, please, Captain. Steady now, the girl said, while pushing a button labeled number nine. As the door slid closed, she pivoted smartly on the heels of her shiny Mary Janes and snapped a proper British palm-forward salute up at McMillan. He returned the salute without thinking, and she assumed a parade rest stance. Brigadier Bigglesworth Hayes, at your service, Captain. However, you may address me as Vicky or Victoria, which is the preferred address. McMillan could feel the old elevator start to rise. It moved far faster than he expected. What in God's name is this place, Vicky? And just where did it come from? And you too, for that matter. I'm afraid that information requirement is way above your pay grade, Captain, sir. Look, Vicky, Victoria, whatever, you can knock off all the captain stuff. He knelt down beside her and tipped his helmet back slightly. Just call me by my middle name, Sherm or Sherman, your choice. And I'll call you Victoria as you requested, okay? She visibly relaxed and grinned. Agreed, Sham. Good. He tweaked her button nose with his fingers and stood upright. By the way, I just retired from the army, at the rank of major, so I'm merely plain old mister these days. I'm quite aware of your current status, Mr. Sham. Why do I suspect you know a whole lot more than that? Because you are an exceptionally perceptive individual. A jolly good quality for a former military officer and a future steel company executive to possess. Over the years, many people praised Macmillan's keen perceptive ability, but hearing it come from the mouth of this strange little English girl gave him a chill. He paused and cleared his throat. <clears throat> okay, so what's really going on here, Victoria? Why do I feel like I was, for want of a better term, called to this place at this particular time? You are here because of your intention to commit murder. What? No, you're wrong. McMillan backed up against the elevator's far wall and shook his head. I'd never murder anyone. How How can you make such an accusation? Because it is true. Seeking some measure of solace, you intend to give the widow Henderson her late husband's long overdue poker winnings. With interest, by the way. Then, out of the intense guilt that has tortured you unnecessarily for so many years... 
You plan to commit suicide. She pointed an accusing finger at Macmillan. And that, Mr. Sherm, is self-murder. Macmillan's heart raced. He felt like it would pound its way right out of his chest. Tears stung his eyes. His breath came in short gasps. It's... it's my fault the Germans killed Henderson. When our supply convoy was ambushed just south of the Belgian town of Bastogne, we got cut off from the rest of the column. The German panzers and infantry had a field day at first, ripping us to pieces. Once some of my men managed to break out the supply of anti-tank weapons we were taking to the 101st Airborne dug in around Bastogne, the tide started to turn. But that wasn't much help to the two of us, considering the way we were positioned. Henderson had a shoulder wound and volunteered to stay back and provide covering fire while I went to salvage more ammo and some rifle grenades from a burning weapons carrier. Despite his wound, Henderson insisted he was well enough to use his M1 to keep the crowd's heads pinned down. It all made sense at the time, but it cost him his life. Before I could get back, they overran his position. If only I'd returned sooner, I could have saved him. Maybe dragged him to safety, something, anything. But I failed him. I was the damned commanding officer. Why the hell didn't I order him to come with me? Perhaps you missed the use of my word unnecessarily a bit earlier. I don't understand. You shall, and very soon. Macmillan realized the elevator was no longer moving. Here we are, Mr. Shen, on the ninth story. Please, watch your step as you exit. The door slid aside, revealing the vast, darkened interior of a movie theater. Or perhaps it was a music hall, much like those he'd seen while on leave in London during the war. Macmillan took a hesitant step out of the elevator. The smells of dampness and burnt wood filled his nostrils while his eyes adjusted to the feeble lighting. He heard the elevator start to close behind him. Oh, and do be especially careful of any UXBs you may find, Mr. Shan. Unexploded bombs? What are you talking- Macmillan spun around and found no trace of the elevator door. All that remained was a plaster wall. Its otherwise smooth surface cracked and pitted and gouged in numerous places. At his feet, several shiny pieces of jagged metal lay scattered on the water-soaked carpeting. My God, that looks like shrapnel. He pounded his fists on the wall. Victoria, where are you? Come back here now. (laughs) An eerie laugh echoed in the void. It was Victoria's. What's going on here, Victoria? Answer me. A burst of light overhead followed by a shower of sparks and the buffeting sound of an explosion made Macmillan think a skyrocket had detonated inside the theater just below the ceiling. Unfortunately, the ceiling and large portions of the roof were missing. Through the remains of charred rafters, he stared in awe at an overcast nighttime sky. The distant drone of multi-engine aircraft reached his ears while brilliant shafts of light crisscrossed under the clouds, searchlight beams seeking the sound's source. He caught a fleeting glimpse of several twin-engine bombers through a hole in the cloud cover. Iron Cross insignias were boldly emblazoned on the undersides of their rounded wings. 
Heinkels, HE-111s, Nazi Germany's most numerous bomber during the London Blitz. Flak bursts dotted the sky around him as anti-aircraft artillery opened fire. And then, they were gone. All was quiet. All except for the steady drip of rainwater drizzling in through the damaged roof. McMillan hollered, Victoria! She replied, A beam of light shot from the projection booth and illuminated the ragged remains of a movie screen. Black and white images of two men flickered to life on its silvered surface. Anxious men in dirty uniforms. Two soldiers in a roadside ditch. During a desperate battle. Amid winter snow. A pair of actors in a Hollywood war film? He recognized them. No not actors. They were images of Henderson and himself. Mr. Shen, this is what really happened that day. Take careful note, Major McMullen, of the words and actions of Sergeant Henderson and Captain McMullen. The sounds of combat rumbled from the theater's loudspeakers. Over the steady din of gunfire and exploding ordnance, McMillan heard the images speak. Captain, I'm down to my last two ammo clips. I've still got six. Here, take these two and follow me. If that burning deuce and a half doesn't blow first, maybe we can salvage enough rounds and grenades to fight our way back to the rest of the convoy. Sir, with this shoulder wound, I couldn't carry much more than my own M1. We'd be better off if I provided covering fire for you. You're right. But let me check that wound again to make sure the bleeding is still under control. No, no, it's okay. You patched me up real good the first time. You sure, Sergeant? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, honest. Uh, Better get moving, sir. That truck blows you. We won't have a chance. All right. Take the rest of the rifle clips. I still have my Browning sidearm. Good luck, Captain. I'll keep the crowds off your tail. The men shook hands, and their images froze on the screen. McMillan leaned against the wall and slid down in a crouch. He closed his eyes buried his face in his arms, and wept like a lost child. At first, his anguished sobs echoed and re-echoed through the vacant theater. Then, they sounded closer and quieter, almost as if the room had shrunk in size around him. He felt a tug on his sleeve and heard a little girl's voice. Mr. Sherman, it's all right now. He opened his eyes, surprised to find himself inside Victoria's elevator. She leaned over and kissed his cheek. Sergeant Henderson had suffered a fatal injury. A bullet fragment nicked an artery. He was bleeding out internally and realized he wouldn't make it. Somehow, he knew the best course of action was to give you the greatest possible chance to live. And he succeeded beyond anything he could ever imagined. That is why you were able to save so many of your other men's lives and win the Medal of Honor. Victoria removed McMillan's helmet and handed him his officer's cap. Then she gave him a hug. He hugged her back. The elevator chime sounded and the door opened on the first floor. McMillan couldn't believe what he was seeing. The Christmas tree in the main lobby was ablaze with colored lights. 
Silver and gold garlands were wrapped around pine branches laden with glittering ornaments of every imaginable shape, size, and color. On the very top, a lacy white angel spread its feathery wings. At the tree's base, a handcrafted set of wooden figures retold the ancient story of the Christ child's nativity. Next to the manger tableau, a gilded music box played Silent Night. Macmillan stood and wiped his eyes with a handkerchief. When did all of... I mean, who could have possibly had the... (laughs) Victoria giggled and said, That information is on a need-to-know basis only, Mr. McMullen, and not for civilian consumption. She giggled again. (laughs) It is Christmas, after all, and that is what you really need to know. She skipped over to the tree and pulled a purple card from its branches. It's almost time for you to leave, but before you go... There are three questions that you must answer correctly. He took the card from her hand. It was embossed with the letter V, done in a flowing script typeface. He opened it and looked at the handwritten words inside. Before he could say anything, Victoria recited the questions aloud from memory. Number one should be easy. Did Sergeant Henderson say he and his wife were hoping for a boy or a girl? A boy. Very good. Now, number two. If they had a boy... What sort of toy did Henderson say he planned to buy his future son when he was old enough to play with it? An electric toy train. Correct. All right, this is a tough one. What was Henderson's favorite number to play in any sort of lottery? Macmillan drew a blank at first. Then it hit him. 312. And he knew exactly what the answer meant. Correct. Or bingo, as the old biddies say. Very good, Mr. Sham. Now off you pop. It's getting late, and the stores are about to close. Macmillan kissed Victoria on the head and ran out onto the street. Dodging buses and taxis, he made it safely across Nostrand Avenue. The lights were still on inside Steinwitz and Sons, and the American Flyer electric toy train set was still circling the little Christmas village. The model of the multi-story building had disappeared from the window display. Without even looking behind him, he knew the real building had also disappeared. Victoria's purple card was still in his hands as he entered Steinwitz and Son Toy Emporium, feeling better than he had in many, many years. As he crossed the threshold, he glanced at the back of the purple card. The handwritten note on it said, Happy Christmas, Mr. Shen. It was signed, Love, Victoria. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lift. Today's episode featured a story by Chuck Rackage. 312 Noel. 
If you'd like more information on Chuck and his work, you're going to have to visit our website because Chuck bills himself as the original analog man. He does not currently have a web presence, but we're working on that. So for now, you can head on over to the show notes for this episode, which is victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E4. And you'll find Chuck's bio if you scroll down past the picture and the other information on the story. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit HorrorMade.com and follow her on Twitter at HorrorMade. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and coming soon to iTunes and Google Play. Since we are not currently in iTunes, we count on you sharing the show to help us grow. So please share the show with your friends. Don't have any friends? Make some new ones by sharing the show. This show's feed is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The Lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams, wetalkofdreams.com. This episode was arranged by me and John Nespazinski. You can find more information on John and his work at teamorchard.com. Incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. You can check the show notes for titles and credits for all music used. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E4. On behalf of myself, Cynthia Lohman, Amber Collins, and Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes, Merry Christmas. We'll see you again for New Year's. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. <laughs>